Kristen Rawls. And I'm Jeff Eaton. This is Christian Rightcast. It's a podcast in which we uh, discuss and dissect the history and the personalities and the ideas of the of right-wing Christian authoritarianism um, as a movement and as a culture to better understand sort of the 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 moment we're in uh, as as a as a culture, which that's huh. a heck of a time to have that as a topic of conversation because uh, we're recording this um, end of June, beginning of July, uh, 2022. Um, and the Supreme Court today just wrapped its session um, for the year and they handed down a laundry list of um, basically wish list items that the that the right-wing religious authoritarian movements that we've talked about have been sort of yearning for for a generation you know everything from you know from prayer is you know from radically loosening restrictions on school officials being able to lead students in prayer to um you know to well the elephant in the room yeah is roe versus wade was struck down uh, and that's what's yeah. been getting ton of attention rightly so and that's really what we're going to focus on today now the prayer in schools thing i i thought that evangelicals had had almost given up on that one like they you know they were taking their children out of schools they were doing homeschooling <laughs> instead they had they had decided that the government schools were not for for them but uh and I think it, in a microcosm, the fact that, you know, it was easy to think that, you know, oh, I thought they'd all decided we're going to just pull out and, you know, do homeschooling and, you know, Christian schools. What's this parallel court case about that? I, I think that's a good example yeah. of how often these things are, they're happening on a lot of different fronts. And although there's a lot of common philosophical threads and ideals that unite these movements, they often take very different tactical approaches and have different ideas of what the right direction to pursue in the near term is, which means you can have one group that's attempting to tear down, you know, the very concept of public schools as something that even exists, and another group from the same broad ideological scene is trying to make sure that, you know, our good Christian schools aren't silenced by atheists. You know, the two right, would seem to be had, in tension with each other, but, you know. You, you have the homeschooling movement, and you also had CU at the poll, a mm -hmm. group where organized students go and pretend that they're I'll tell you, as a homeschooler in the 90s, being very excited about CU at, at, at the poll as a cultural event was very <laughs> confusing. <laughs> I went to it once. It was weird. I felt very uncomfortable. And it, you know, like it, it's one of those things that like it takes a special kind of vibe to be really passionate about getting up in front of your peers and gathering around a flagpole <laughs> and praying like and we sing our God is an awesome God. It was terrible. It's, it's so there, there's a lot of like '90s worship music that just needs to stay in the '90s, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, okay, so you know, I, I, you know, like you said, we 
row and not necessarily what it means, because I feel like there's a lot of people right now who are doing good work in unpacking what row being struck down means legally means, and culturally yeah. and stuff like that. And it can be pretty heavy listening and heavy reading to pick through that stuff right now. Um, but I think what we're hoping in this episode to touch on is how we got here and like what the pro sorry it's old habits die hard um the anti-abortion movement um i almost said pro-life not necessarily because it it's it's almost muscle memory from um yeah from the time that i spent in that movement um it's a movement that's been around for a long, long time, and it has gone through its own seasons of profound despair and hopelessness about whether or not it would ever actually make an impact or be able to change things, um, and has gone through a number of significant strategic and tactical shifts over the years, both in terms of mm -hmm. who was really pushing and you know energizing the movement and the tactics and strategies that it pursued um and that's to a certain degree the story of how it adapted and changed its approaches is the story of how we got here today and why i think so many people are shocked and surprised at the fact that roe was struck down when I think so many people in our culture talked about it and regarded it as like something ironclad, something that was just there in the landscape. And at the worst, people found ways to work around in order to restrict reproductive rights, not something that would go away. Um, and that has been the case for our whole lives. So even I, I mean, even having watched them operate on all cylinders like this and seeing so many different tactics used. I was shocked yeah. by this. Um, I didn't really think they were going to win. I, I mean, I did, after, you know, I did when, when, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, but before that, I just, yeah, this, this seemed, uh, it, it seemed ironclad. I, uh, I mean, I will even say that I think, for them, they a lot of things had to a lot of unexpected things had to happen in their favor for yeah. this to happen. But they have also been putting in forty to fifty years of work to have all of the pieces in place when one of those when some of those lucky breaks for them happened. Everything mm -hmm. was, you know, everything was in place. And I think that's yeah. what happened here with both, you know, the election of Trump and the mm -hmm. radical shift in the court's makeup in a short period of time. But uh, before that, George W. Bush getting to appoint two different judges, you know, right. Alito and, and, and Roberts. So, yeah, the, the, the fact that those two presidents have, have, you know, they appointed five judges is is i mean what were the odds of that happening <laughs> and i i've i've talked with a couple of friends 
over the past several days about this. And I think, you know, it, it's impossible to, it's impossible to, to understand what happened without recognizing just how central the anti-abortion movement realized like the Supreme court makeup of the 1970s was in the defeats they suffered. The Republican and really captured the Republican party by the 80s. Yeah. And and how like their, their mobilization around that and the fact that they were able to find common ground to ally with conservative reactionaries in the Republican Mm -hmm. party. Like, you know, that, that's, that's a story we've talked about, but like Mm -hmm. that history of their like, you know, suffering significant body blows in the seventies is right. So let's, so yeah, let's go back in time because I know you've been doing some reading and research on a couple of the pieces that even predate that. And I'd love to hear about that because I think for a lot of us, the idea of uh, a movement around this for or against that predates Roe is very fuzzy. Right. Well, so, and I'm not an expert in this by any means, but my understanding is that it's, yeah, it starts before Roe. um, And before Roe, it's largely a Catholic thing in the United States. Um, Or at the very least understood as a Catholic thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it is it doesn't have widespread support among evangelicals. There, are, I mean, there are a couple who who from the beginning are against abortion, and they well, the main one is uh, R. J. Rushduni, the father of Christian Reconstructionism. Of course, um, and. I think he kind of influenced Francis Schaeffer, and you're going to talk a little more about him, yeah. um, bringing evangelicals along. But before that, um, it is largely uh, the provenance of of the the of Catholic uh, activist. Uh, well, well, it really starts as an intellectual project mm-hmm. um, in in with um, Catholic philosophers and theologians. Um, and developing this natural law. Um, and when you theory, say natural uh, law, you mean like this like theory of like, what are the foundations on which we would decide whether something is good or bad beyond simply whether it's legal or not? Yes, yes. So, so, so this starts as kind of an intellectual exercise and, and Catholics are generally understood to be against abortion. Um, in the 60s, you get more um, the beginnings of a, a peace movement and you get people who are who are sort of kind of they're, they're kind of like social justice uh, left leaning types, some of whom identify as feminists, anti-war, um, pro-environment, and, Catholic. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. And they start to um, to want to take the movement out of the you know the ivory tower and, and sort of and out of churches and into everyday life. And they are the ones who develop the tactics that we later see um, you know taken up by groups like Operation Rescue. Right? They're the ones who start these different. Um, you know, clinic blockades and, um, and that, but that like that predates Roe 
like legalizing abortion nationwide. Was this mostly like in areas where it was legal or? Not, not all predating Roe. Okay. This is going on in the 60s and 70s. Okay, okay. Um, kind of along with the anti-war movement, you got you have people who are who who are you know who are starting to criticize U.S. foreign policy and the Cold War and 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 then they're like, well, what about so a, a few different of the women who got involved early on said that they, when they saw videos of um, like uh, alleged videos of abortions taking place, like that they they thought about footage they had seen from Vietnam, right? So for them, so, it was, there was at least like conceptually, there was a deep connection between those things. Yeah. And so they, and they have this idea that, that this is an attack on the most vulnerable members of our society. So the, it is not evangelicals who come up with the tactics that like Operation Rescue and Randall Terry are famous for. It is, it's these, hippies who are tying um you know their anti-war sentiment to this uh, like ideas about pacifism and being also being against abortion and it's interesting Um, because like we you know i think we mentioned earlier in the pre-show conversation that like there's also echoes of like environmentalist um protests and stuff like that you know like the idea of direct action as like putting Mm -hmm. yourself between you know, the, yeah. the, 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 you know, using your body to stop the harm that, you know, you believe is being. Committed. And also this, the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. they see, some of them see it as, um, as, as being a continuation of that. Now they're not all liberals or leftists. Mm-hmm. There are also conservatives involved in this. Um, and, and, and my perception further... is like, at least on the, on the evangelical Protestant side, <sighs> A lot of at least the tenor of the discussions about abortion that I recall reading from mm-hmm. that period mm-hmm. were also more concerned about it as a general moral issue. Like yeah. it was less about that coherent ethos of like a culture of life or something like that that you'll often hear anti-abortion people refer to today. That was mm-hmm. not really present on the evangelical and Protestant side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't, and that comes from Catholic ideas about an an ethic of life, as I understand it. Um, but it's and it's all sort of adapted to later into evangelical thinking but um yeah so so it kind of starts out as this catholic thing and um not even really as a result of roe like in the years after roe it takes a little time for evangelicals to get on board um the catholics who are doing this organizing see them as this um vast like body of people who can really get their movement going. The sleeping giant, so to speak. Can kind of serve as the muscle behind the the whole thing. Um, That if that, and, and so they make, they do make an actual effort to get them involved and to, to work together and alliances are made for, through the national um, right to life committee, which is a, a large, the large, 
anti-abortion group, one of the oldest groups, um, was started by, by Catholics. Um, and they, they start to try to work together. So it isn't just that there's this, that Reagan, um, runs for president and makes these alliances they're they're beginning to be made between catholics and evangelical protestants already and reagan it's not his idea he kind of is approached by some evangelical pastors and just and kind of takes advantage of it yeah um in order to bring the evangelicals onto his side and this is 1980 when reagan becomes president and it's and it's largely around the anti-abortion issue. This is when evangelicals become a a solid Republican voting bloc, um, and that and, that never changes from from that time. And I think um, it's also this at this like pivot point that we're talking about. Um, I think it's also important, and you know you. You said I was probably going to mention Francis Schaeffer, um, who's, um, uh, let's at least say he was strongly influenced by and admired Rush Dooney, uh, who's been discussed on previous episodes of the show. Yeah. Um, Schaefer was about as close to like an iconic public intellectual as you could get in the evangelical world of like the seventies and eighties. And he was regarded as someone who was maybe a little edgy. Like he hung out with hippies Mm -hmm. in Switzerland instead of, you know, churches and, you know, church boards and stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But the ideas that he was putting forth were on a lot of fronts even when they did question a lot of evangelical orthodoxy and dogma, he was still putting forth a lot of fundamentally deeply conservative and even reactionary views in his his son, Frankie Schaefer has written a lot since then about the complicated story of where that came from. I think it's easy to argue. He has that, said that he helped radicalize him on yeah. abortion in the and, years. But I, but I do think from his son's narration <laughs> and the arc of Francis Schaeffer's sort of career as an evangelical intellectual, I think it's easy mm-hmm. to say that Schaefer was at times conflicted about the implications of what he was saying and the cases he made for things, but that never and, well, really let's stopped talk about let's, let's, can you be clear about <laughs> yeah. what kind of case? I mean, he, he's okay. Like, so, he's, so Schaefer, you, Schaefer, he argued for a, a violence, for violence at abortion clinics. And for, she, right? she, so Schaefer wrote a book called how should we, how should we then live? Um, mm-hmm. That, and I think it came out in 76. It was first published. So mm-hmm. it was like not too long after Roe. Um, but it was deeply influenced by that um, Catholic sort of natural law concept of how to regard abortion. Um, mm-hmm. And it made the case basically that evangelical Christians in particular were guilty of looking at 
culture and life as bits and pieces and this case and that case and this issue and that issue instead of looking at it as like a totalizing framework in which all of these things were part of a, a coherent whole. And he wrote in that book that the three things he really focused on were um, infanticide, abortion, and euthanasia, which he said were like all, you know, just three faces of the same thing. And it was this fundamental assault on the idea of human personhood having meaning and dignity and value. And he felt that Christians needed to essentially join these Catholics who'd been fighting the good fight for, you know, for years and mobilized to end abortion because it was just the the beginning of a complete unraveling of human worth. Um, and that, I don't think that necessarily took immediately, um, but he also right. ended up doing a film series, like mm-hmm. a series of films and like there were tours that, you know, he and other people associated with it went f- mm-hmm. from church to church showing this film about, you know, the evils of abortion and like the the philosophical case for life being this thing that should be, you know, defended. Um, and going into... Um, like the Reagan campaign and like, you know, like as far as laying the foundation of a weirdly ecumenical conservative Christian front that we now sort of see as like the religious right rather than evangelicals, you know, Mormons, Catholics, you know, stuff like that. There's this sort of unified right. I think he laid a lot of the groundwork and argued explicitly for how that was an imperative. And the arguments he made, he was always very careful not to like advocate, say, attempting to overthrow the government. But he would very carefully make the intellectual and conceptual case for, well, if government's authority comes from God ultimately, and this is this, and we are the ones who are, you know, supposed to, you know, you know, essentially be God's representatives, then, well, if government is now saying that things that God disapproves of are acceptable, then it is no longer acting within its authority and we must Mm -hmm. then act. Now I'm not saying X, but... Right. He, so it occurs to me that he's a little bit of a of a of a Christian evangelical Jordan Peterson type of character. <laughs> wow, you know? that just makes all of my teen years seem so much more <laughs> sordid and sad. But yeah, I mean, you, I think you could definitely make the case for that. I think that I'd have to think real hard before signing on. It just because the shameless hucksterism of Jordan Peterson is so (laughs) radiant. Um, Like Francis Schaeffer, to the best of my knowledge, never sold busts of himself. Um, But but in terms of he was not necessarily a gifted original thinker. Most of the work that he did was popularizing and reframing heavy intellectual lifting that other intellectual and movements he, had done he repackaged that for the evangelical necess- movement 
it was understood that he didn't even really read the philosophical texts that he was claiming at Jason. It was he, very citation he, heavy, not necessarily. Then, yeah, yeah. So, well, it, oh, God, yeah. That I, does a, make the a Jordan bi- Peterson comparison actually feel <laughs> like, a little on target. I'm really good at In a biography, in one of the biographies I read of Rush Dooney, like, Rush Dooney always was like, I'm the real intellectual. Why is this guy taking off like this? <laughs> he, like, one of the things that's mentioned in that, in one of the books, is that uh, Schaefer, nobody ever saw Schaefer reading books. That he like he he read Time magazine all the time. Like he wasn't really reading intellectual texts. And he was getting the material from people who came through Labrie, which is their their retreat center in Switzerland, and disseminating. Well, you know, so maybe he was good at understanding things he heard and, and repeating them. And I think to a, a certain degree that speaks to the fact that what everyone I ever read said about him. Everyone that I knew that yeah. said, you know, his contemporaries, the the positive things were almost always about how he fundamentally knew how to speak a different language than people who mm-hmm. had previously been saying many of the same things. And I think yeah. that's important because Francis Schaeffer's framing of these issues mm-hmm. was he... Yeah, it, he he did not have the air of what we even to this day talk about as like a stereotypical fundy Christian person. He was talking yeah. about the importance of, of environmentalism for evangelicals, too, because, right. you know, we've been given responsibility to care for the earth. And when talking about abortion and and infanticide and euthanasia, he would always, you know, those were always talked about together. You know, it was mm-hmm. always talking about human dignity and things like that. Um, and I think mm-hmm. we've talked about this too, but I think in retrospect, looking back at, as a young person, I found Francis Schaeffer tremendously compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can also look back and say that the careful choice to always tackle these issues, you know, of, you know, infanticide, euthanasia mm-hmm. and abortion together and only to talk about sort of the common thread that he argued were, was running through them, you know, the disregard for the value and dignity of life, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The reasons why someone might need or get an abortion other than mm-hmm disregard for the value of life or something like that right, right, never right. really yeah. factored in it was an intellectual proposition right and the the common thread between an elderly person who you know might be you know who, who might be tempted to commit suicide or others might try to force them to commit suicide or an abortion that someone might you know try to have they all sort of faded into a sort of uniform haze of anti-life stuff rather than real actual concrete lives in which people were making these decisions. Which is similar to the way Jordan Peterson sees. Well, oh man, you're just, Oh, you've, you're just pushing that knife deeper. I mean, he's never really thinking about, okay. I haven't read his, his book i'm not going to read his book i have read 
one of them, not the Peterson. Not the long Peterson. Yeah. Okay. So it's, I it it's everything you fear it is. It's just I bad. have I've paid attention to his Twitter feed and listened to some YouTube clips and um it, it's just a, it's a similar way of like not not considering the human aspect of, of, of anything. And, and in fact, regarding about. that those human aspects as fundamentally irrelevant pollution to the important yeah. intellectual work of figuring out the ideal. Yeah. And I think that yeah. characterizes the sort of Schaefer-led early days of the evangelical pro-life movement. Um, I mean, it's not that surprising that Peterson appeals to a lot of teen boys. It's not that surprising that this would have, that Schaefer would have, you, you know, you don't have an advanced degree in philosophy. You don't, you're not able to sort of sort out all the. You're not looking you know, up the what, citations to say, no, what right. did that Greek philosopher actually say? Right. And, and you're kind of raised in this intellectual wasteland of, of, the Christian homeschooling movement, and then and then so somebody comes along that can speak uh, like this erudite language, and it, it sounds it sounds really good, and also um, upholds the the kind of beliefs and, and that you've been raised with, and, and is um, able to frame them in a much bigger and broader context than what you have ever heard. Like, right? I think for a lot of people in the evangelical universe, what Schaefer articulated and what the people who came after him in the evangelical world articulated of this yeah. not being a political issue that Christians have an opinion on, but rather Christians have this profound, big, bigger than any civilization, like core ethos that that has a history running back millennia that we must remain true to. And mm -hmm. these current moments of public policy are, they're just, you know, they're just mm -hmm. a moment of reflection of what that big conflict is. That's, that's intoxicating language. And I, I think the the tenor of a lot of the right to life movement because i know i know you mentioned like the national right to life movement mm -hmm. um i think that says a lot that like all of the phrasing the terminology the framing of that early anti-abortion movement that i ever saw or witnessed both mm -hmm. at the time and in reading back was very focused on the idea of that that unborn baby has a right, has a moral right mm -hmm. to X. Yeah. And it was all entirely focused on that. And a lot of the mm -hmm. discussion of women who might be getting abortions or anyone involved in the process or whatever was entirely focused on their role in denying this unborn child their moral fundamental moral right. And mm -hmm. what they were doing to that child in a philosophical intellectual sense and so i want to recap a little bit so it's yeah. the movement of catholics to bring evangelicals along it's what francis schaefer is doing which really 
push it radicalizes a lot of a lot of evangelicals and it's also the the reagan revolution the the reagan making inroads with evangelicals um all of these things kind of are happening together and evangelicals become the main actors of the pro-life movement the most important and the you know but at the same time (laughs) but at the same time it's not like catholics give up on no 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 no. but like at at the same time the 70s and early 80s was from an actual public policy standpoint Mm -hmm. pretty fruitless right for the movement like public opinion on abortion despite all of their messaging and protests and putting a boarded fetuses in people's faces on signs and stuff like that didn't budge fundamentally. Like the number of people in the United States who, when you drill down into details about what they support or don't support or in what contexts or, you know, what kind of regulations they would support, a majority of people has supported minimal regulation on abortion and the right. principle of broad access to it in roughly the same percentages all the way back to Rome. The, the, the movement has not been able to budge that. So in the 80s is when a lot of the more radical tactics, not nobody's getting murdered yet. They aren't blowing people up in the early, or they aren't, excuse me, they aren't blowing up abortion clinics yet in the early eighties. They are starting to blockade clinics. They're starting to go and harass people at clinics um, before, before that is pre- prevented by law. They're shutting down clinics. They're vandalizing medical equipment. Um, this is when uh, Randall Terry of Operation Rescue becomes prominent and becomes the primary actor in the rescue movement, which they think that they're rescuing babies by engaging in these direct action tactics. And like right um, now, I think we're also primarily used to the idea of anti-abortion protests as being like people outside of clinics haranguing people going into clinics. But right. at the, in that era, a lot of the those protests were actually like people chaining themselves to clinic doors and people yeah. attempting to physically shut down clinics on an ongoing basis. Again, mm-hmm. hearkening back to like, um, you know, environmental protest, you know, environmentalist protesters trying to shut down a whaling ship or something like that. They used many of the same tactics and framed their actions in much the same way. You know, they were. I want to, yeah, I want to say I don't know off the top of my head what year the first abortion clinic bombing was, so I may not have been exactly right about that. It, it I know that it becomes more common throughout as you get further into the 80s um, as the Army of God, which is um, it's so a like Christian the, I, I just did a quick is, look, and like the very first one was like uh-huh. March of 76. Oh, um, okay. And then February of 78, there was another. But like, um, you know, Vox actually has like a timeline of them, okay. you know, since the 70s. Um, and it really takes off later in the 80s, right? And in particular, especially inside of the anti abortion movement, 
yeah. real heartfelt discussion about whether or not this is a legitimate tactic or not. Yeah. And, and people who have said, you know, like Randall Terry has would say, it's, you know, that, that, that they were a peaceful movement, but then he has also worked with people who ended up doing bombings. And he has also said he could, you know, he, he, um, he was he, happy about the murder of George Tiller. He was, um, yeah. so there's, there's a lot of like, people will say, you know, I don't support, I, um, I don't, I don't support violence. And then when violence actually happens, they'll be kind of equivocating about it, or they'll say that, you know, we're not going to make the abortionist the victim here because the victims are the innocent babies and the mothers and the, you know. And I think that, so <laughs> I think that's, it, it's, so to give a little bit of background, I know we've, we've mm. talked about like our respective histories um, yeah. You know, I was, you know, I was homeschooled in the 80s and, you know, up through like the mid 90s. Um, I would say that I came of age in an era where abortion was conceptually the big issue that I perceived as, you know, the big issue of my generation, like the way like the anti-war movement, you know, might have been perceived as a, 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 as a rallying point issue for, you know, a previous generation. And I was a wholehearted and enthusiastic member of that mm. movement. Um, I never like participated in direct action. Um, but I like went to marches for, mm. you know, like the, the March for life events and mm. stuff like that. Um, I, you know, went door to door for, you know, pro local pro-life candidates and, you know, stuffed envelopes for, you know, political campaigns. And I wrote a zine and, you know, Mm -hmm. interviewed pro-life lobbyists and did a glowing mm -hmm. puff piece on Henry Hyde. I was that oh. kid, you know, I, I mean, um, and I was very, very enthusiastically on board and grappled with a lot of the questions that we're talking about now firsthand and many of the people that I knew who were my age or even older were also doing that because the, the reason I'm, I, 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 I want to mention these things and to, and that I think it's instructive mm -hmm. is not the sort of, Oh, Hey, you know, violent authoritarian right wingers have feelings too. And they're nuanced. Mm -hmm. It's that, I see a lot of deep and fundamental misconceptions about what mm -hmm. people think inside of these movements and how they, mm -hmm. how they understand their place in it. And mm -hmm. that's, I do believe that that is sometimes important when it comes to understanding what can be done. Politically. About it. Yeah. And I agree. like, I, I know that, 
raised on, uh, you know, years and years of heartfelt theological and intellectual argument about this being not just the worst slaughter since the Holocaust, but also fundamental to the nature of human civilization. That like this issue of abortion is the tip of the iceberg to what holds Western civilization together and of, you know, the dignity of human life and it's worth protecting. The fact that like the Schaefer, you know, the, the, that sort of Catholic natural law intellectual history filtered through Francis Schaefer's like, um, distillation and disseminated into the evangelical world. Anyone who actually took that seriously sort of had to at least grapple with those questions mm-hmm. when faced with the fundamental lack of progress that yeah. the anti-abortion movement saw itself making through, say, the early 90s. There was this sense they... of nothing changing. Or, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The, about... the sorry. The let's say the the 80s, not the not the 90s. I like mm-hmm. up to that point, there was just this real sense of like almost despairing. You know, we're we're fighting the good fight, but you know, the only wins mm-hmm. we get are every once in a while we stop a woman from aborting her child, and you know, it's it's not yeah. like anything's happening. They so. So they did operate on all cylinders. They were capturing local governments. Mm-hmm. They, they, but like you said, I think when we were talking earlier, they did come to understand um, controlling the Supreme Court as the big first step. Of, you know, that overturning Roe was I... not the end point for them, but was the the beginning of their plan. Um, I. <laughs> I also remember, like, I, I grew up watching lots of the 700 Club with Pat Robertson, too. Uh-huh. And, man, if there's anybody who has just a monumental and terrifying corpus of publicly, of quotes in the public record of, like, random stuff they've spotted off about, like, Pat Robertson, he did a daily television show for, like, longer than most people have been alive. Mm-hmm. So there's, yeah. he spouted off about a lot of stuff. But, like, one of the consistent themes for years upon years was, like, the idea that the the Supreme Court was essentially mm-hmm. just this sort of fundamentally illegitimate thing that liberals had captured and were turning into a tool to like, you know, break apart the the linchpins mm-hmm. of of civilization and that the idea yeah. of the right to privacy was just something they just kind of invented in order to you know, justify Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. and that it was yeah. a terrible decision and that it would eventually be, you know, thrown out, not because anybody was against abortion, but just because it was a terrible decision. And that like, yeah. that was back into the eighties that that line of argument was being advanced, even when the movement didn't really talk about actually changing the makeup of the court being realistic. Right. It was just right. something that should be done. One thing I keep coming up against in the way that people from outside this movement understand this is that, that there's this 
look what you did, white women, with the 53% who voted for Trump sort of sentiment go, going around on, on Twitter. And, <sighs> I, and I, I really think that, so that first of all, a majority of women who, of white women who voted for Trump were evangelicals. And my impression of it is that there's not a lot of like, um, like, there's not a lot of feminist solidarity. Like they're not kicking themselves. Like, what have I done? Oh no. They're, they're, they are, they are people who voted for Trump so that he would appoint judges who would overturn Roe versus Wade, the women yeah. of this. And, and it wasn't they're not, even... they're, it's, it's a waste of time to be like, look what you did. Cause they're, they're happy about it. They're celebrating. The... They, they, experienced joy as a result of this there and then so it's not like they were like i'm just gonna sacrifice my bodily autonomy to uphold white supremacy it's more that they were wholehearted supporters of both um in my opinion well i, I, I mean yeah. i think that that speaks to the idea that like the even someone who is <laughs> who is getting a raw deal in terms of a system like religious patriarchy can still mm -hmm. be bought into that system yes. and can ideologically and materially say, yes, this is right. And I support it. And, you know, I am a member of this and it is what is good and proper. And I think it's dangerous to assume that people who have bought into that movement and like the, the anti-abortion movement is, that I knew was always heavily populated by, um, by mothers and young women, mm -hmm. not just a bunch of old guys. There's obviously a, a deep thread of patriarchal control, but that isn't to say that the movement is a bunch of white guys deciding things either. And it's really dangerous to assume that because it's true and i was looking at um some pew statistics this week and i don't have the exact numbers right with me but um a majority of evangelicals are women so by, by about 10 percentage points um to, to the point that for so, a long time the evangelical movement like panicked about that and a lot of its yeah. crisis of masculinity rhetoric of and like men aren't coming to church yeah exactly mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so so there are a lot of women in in this movement, and um, and I got this very so my pers my perspective because I knew people. I was not homeschooled, but I did know people in the homeschooling movement, um, and was very social with many of them. Um, my perspective was based on what the teen girls and young women were doing um and and some of them were learning to lobby congress and because i knew people in northern virginia kind of um who, who were connected to chris clicka and the homeschool legal defense association and um and so so some of them were getting the but but one of the things that they were allowed to do these girls who weren't supposed to work outside the home one way they could sometimes was if they worked for a crisis pregnancy center um and, and so i got I, i've never been to a crisis pregnancy center but i got some perspective on what they thought they were doing um in the 90s um 
because you know you didn't really talk to boys in that movement it was girls talking to girls because it was so um gender segregated gender segregated yeah um and so this was something that girls were interested in and looking into doing especially girls who came out of the homeschooling movement like their parents weren't going to let them go become a waitress at a restaurant at 16. um so at that time i understood crisis pregnancies to be an evangelical thing and, and um, to be clear, like for, for folks who aren't necessarily familiar with it or who've only sort of peripherally heard of the phrase, mm. like yeah, it, it, the, the new, like neutrally, what is a crisis pregnancy center? And then like it's, realistically, yeah. what is it? Okay. It is, it claims to be a women's health clinic, but it's, it's actually not. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what they do. Um, their goal is to convince, um, pregnant people to carry their babies to term. Um, that is the primary goal is to save the baby from their perspective. Um, the first one was started in Toronto by a Catholic woman named Louise Summerhill in 1968. So this didn't even start in the United States. Um, the place is called Birthright. That became a larger organization. She'd go on to open clinics in the United States. By 2009, there were 3,200 of them in the United States, um, staffed by about 40,000 volunteers along with paid staff, and they saw about a million people. Um, so from the beginning, it's been a very gendered thing. They've staffed themselves with women who see themselves as like as mothering the people who come through the doors. Um, from the beginning, it's been about stopping women from having abortions. Um, like it's it's not but, a health clinic. No, in it's any not a missional sense clinic. of the word. It's a no. it's a prevent abortions center uh, that yes. is advertised as help for people having for a you know it, just the name a crisis pregnancy center. Yeah. I think, sort of frames it. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the first ones, um, they were more on paper interested in Catholic ideals around social justice. So um, there was an interest in providing social services for people who came through. And depending on where you go, there are still some crisis pregnancy centers that might connect you to social welfare resources they might help you out with food but that's that's not their main thing um at the so um early on they they wanted to provide free or cheap housing to make it more possible for poor people to carry pregnancies to term um and to be clear there, the problem that they're recognizing that, isn't that someone doesn't have a place to live, but that they might right. get an abortion. No, they're not going to be able to live there to raise the child. That This is a pregnancy center only. So um, evangelicals come to kind of control this industry, and they're just 
transparently not as interested in social welfare. So <laughs> all of that has kind of fallen by the wayside as Protestant evangelicals have come to dominate every facet of the anti-abortion movement. Um, there has always been con coercion involved. So um, people have reported being pressured or coerced um, in these in these pregnancy homes to give up their children for adoption. So not unlike these um, regressive homes for unwed mothers from the past that faith groups started um, where where girls were kept in seclusion and forced to give up their babies. So these groups have done that too. Um, you may have thought that they were there to help you and then have your have, can have your baby taken away. Um, there's always been a very paternalistic attitude towards the the, the, um, the people who come through for help. Um, one thing that I found interesting that I hadn't really ever thought about is that um, in order to bring the pregnant people on their side, there's this tendency to demonize men in a, in a way to suggest to the patients, you know, that they've been, you know, done wrong by bad men. And there's just these helpless victims. It's very paternalistic. So, and so that in, instead of having to make the pregnant people bad, they'll infantilize them. So it's, um, there was actually one of the questions that we got from one of the listeners. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Jonathan Corman on Twitter said, you know, yeah. I'd love if you could unpack the like doctors are villains and women are victims or yeah, are they yeah. angle. And because he said it, that, it just doesn't understand that. And I think this is really the heart of that because sometimes, that really, sometimes any abortion rhetoric is very strong on, oh, these evil women who hate yeah. what is good and right so much they would kill their own babies. And other times it's, oh, they're these, they're these poor people who've been taken advantage of by evil doctors and clinics. Yeah, a lot of that comes out of having to interact with them in the context of these crisis pregnancy centers. And it just being <laughs> like more... Um, you know, helpful to be able to say, well, that man, you know, that man wronged you and used you and, and you, you know, you need our help. Um, so that they, they would, they began to insist that, um, that abortion would just re-victimize them. And to make the case, they would draw on the on junk science done by anti-abortion doctors uh, claiming that abortion would cause mental health problems and also physical problems like cancer or yeah. sterility. And none of it's true, but they'll, um, they will, uh, lie about about those things. They will include language about the right to choose in their ads, and they will they will even go as far sometimes as to say that they provide abortion care. Um, they have gotten into some trouble with the FTC and with various state agencies from time to time for advertising false services. Um, and when they're found to have broken regulatory laws. Um, the laws may or may not be upheld in, in regulating them. It's kind of a, a crapshoot. Um, it has happened a few times that they've been forced to, to take that out of their um, advertising, but that's more the exception than the rule. And they often just get away with falsely advertising abortions. Um, 
They will mimic the names of nearby abortion clinics. So one example I saw was a women's, something called a women's health clinic was renamed women's help, H-E-L-P clinic to confuse people about which one was the actual abortion clinic. Um, Another frequent lie involves telling people that they're earlier in their pregnancies than they actually are. So if a state has an abortion ban at a certain number of weeks in a pregnancy, you basically get them to run out the clock until the abortion would not be legal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, So the, the idea is that they'll, yeah, they'll wait out the period in which they're free to get an abortion in the state and then they'll be prohibited. It'll be too late. They won't get to make the choice. Um, Another unethical thing they do is they, they are not, they are not healthcare facilities and, and, and they pretend they are like the people will wear uh, medical gowns and, and things like that. And they will collect medical information from pregnant people so that they'll think they're in actual healthcare facilities, but because they're not healthcare facilities, they're not bound by any confidentiality laws. So they might get information about a person's sexual history, uh, they might ask about the number of sexual partners a person has had, um, and they may have like family and next of kin contact information that they collect in these forms. So in an t- attempt to pressure these people not to have abortions, they've been known to contact family members to pressure them too. Um, and that can create some really messy family situations. Like that, That's kind a- of a gross understatement. Yeah, maybe a partner doesn't know about the pregnancy. Maybe the next of kin is a parent who won't approve of the pregnancy or of the fact that the the person is considering abortion. Um, they'll really go to any lengths to pressure you not to have an abortion. That includes using personal information they collect under false pretenses uh, in any way that they think might be able to influence someone. Um, now I wanted to say, um, one thing that really, uh, gave them legitimacy in, in, in the eyes of the public, um, was this, um, perceived epidemic of teen pregnancies during the 1970s. So this was kind of a false moral panic, but, this specter of teen pregnancy was this thing that people freaked out about in the 70s and it lasted into the 90s. Uh, even the Guttmacher Institute, which collects reproductive health statistics, jumped on the teen pregnancy epidemic train. And it turned out that the percentage of teen pregnancies was not actually higher than it had been in the past. It was just that these were boomers. So there were more teens than there had been in previous generations. It's like numerically, yes. Right. But like percentage-wise, <laughs> now pretty much the same as yes. how things have always been. So, right. So the moral panic is really misplaced. The media fails to contextualize this. Even the Guttmacher Institute does a study that, that really... Except the fundamental framing of like a teen pregnancy wave or something. Yeah. And And the CPCs step in, they build these homes for girls to live in. um, And they start to really engage in abstinence only education. Which dovetails with other topics we've touched on and the idea of like 
the the crisis pregnancy center as not just ending uh, a, a tool to end abortion, but also as like sort of a bulwark against this broad secular attack uh, on on Christian values is right. It's like it's yeah. if you go somewhere else, they'll just give kids condoms and an abortion. You know? mm. And so because they do abstinence-only education, they got millions of dollars from the Welfare Reform Act of the Clinton administration and money earmarked for abstinence-only programs. Um, then they got even more federal money dur during the George W. Bush administration's faith-based initiatives and, and you know, continuing abstinence-only programs. Um, Obama ended some of this but the federal government is such a vast bureaucracy that they are still getting some federal money through various loopholes. Um, and so they are. And <laughs> if, if it's okay, I'd, I'd like to, I'd also like to, there's a little bit of context for this sort of the, the role that crisis pregnancy centers played in mm -hmm. this movement that I think is also helpful, you know, as we talk yeah. about like this shift in emphasis, you know, we, we talked about like the, mm -hmm. the Schaefer wave in evangelical anti-abortion sort of, you mm -hmm. know, energy, which was very, it was very focused on like the emotional aesthetics of a fetus being killed and the right. intellectual, like, rigor of coming up with a coherent philosophy of life and abortion mm -hmm. is incompatible with that. Uh -huh. But beyond that, you know, and I think we've touched on this a little bit, women and their lives and why someone might get an abortion were really just irrelevant background noise to a lot of the conversation mm -hmm. that happened. And I think, you know, I, I mentioned the the idea of like, eras of like, you know, sort of despairing that the anti-abortion movement has gone through. There's a fairly good like high level overview posted by political research associates from an article about mm -hmm. a year and a half ago called Changing mm -hmm. Strategies of the Anti-Abortion Movement. I'll, I'll post a link to that in the notes. Um, but it, it sort of summarizes the, the sort of arc that I recall, which was the public very rarely responded well to that kind of argument to yeah. end abortion and following that sort of fruitless era of the seventies and early eighties where like the only real advances that were made were, you know, like the Hyde amendment being passed that prevented federal mm -hmm. funding and um, a parental, a really strict parental notification law in Pennsylvania that went through like those were, those were two of the fundamental things but like that was considered like you know just barely chipping away at a giant brick wall and there was a realization that this argument was not one that had got traction in the broader public and, right, and th this paper particularly identifies two main threads that emerged out of that one was um like women-centric arguments and the right. other was like third party um third party harm 
centric tactics. The first one is like right. limiting clinic access, putting up lots of regulations for clinics, putting waiting periods in place, putting, you know, notification laws to make sure that people are mm-hmm. educated on all of the implications of, you know, of, of what abortion could do to them. Basically mm-hmm. piling on every possible way to run out the clock or shrink access or make it more difficult. Um, but to frame it in the context of making it safer for women or, oh, this is such a dangerous procedure. You know, all these pro-abortion people don't care whether women are hurt. Um, mm-hmm. So we it has to be made safer. That's one sort of track. And the other one was um, things like um, people who believe this is a horrible thing are being forced by the government to participate in it. And that's where mm-hmm. religious conscience laws like, oh, well, a Catholic, you know, hospital can't be forced to mm-hmm. admit physicians who are doing, you know, are doing abortions and you know like those two tracks neither of which emphasized that fundamental like culture of life ethos that you know schaefer had argued for neither of those drew on that but they ended up being the actual successful approaches long term for Mm -hmm. the pro-life movement yeah for the anti-abortion movement again convincing women the convincing women that it will it will cause this irreparable harm that they will never i mean they'll they would the pregnancy centers will tell stories about that and that that may all be made up about people falling into drug addiction and um having horrible lives because they never are able to heal from having an abortion which really is not at all um representative of what most people go through who have abortions and um and i mean so, it, like yeah. give a, a full-term pregnancy is statistically more dangerous yeah much more and, much more deadly and yeah. this this tension um i i honestly believe that um one of the things that tends to frustrate and dishearten me a lot is when the hypocrisy of the movement and the arguments that it makes Mm -hmm. is sort of thrown down as sort of like a gotcha card like yeah and that's it's instructive to a degree because for example attempts to regulate abortion providing facilities more rigorously than um just a hospital, you know, than a facility that doesn't provide abortions. That isn't something that the right was motivated to do out of concern for women's health. It was no. a tactical approach to limiting access to abortions. And that's it was, true. why do one thing when you can do everything? And exactly. You can on every there isn't necessarily a coherent single argument underlying any of the tactics that they have taken like yes it is fundamentally incompatible to justify assassinating doctors you know like you you can't argue an absolute right to someone's life as the basis for it while also arguing that it's you know that it's acceptable or necessary to assassinate someone but 
Yeah, so that Though, because, there's a multiplicity yeah. of approaches, and that gave rise in the era you were talking about, like the late '80s, early '90s. That gave rise to a much, a much more visible and broader dissemination in the even in the evangelical world of a sort of pro-woman, pro-social justice framing. It's very fast. Restrictions. But yeah. It's it's a it's the specific steps they were taking and recommending, and the specific regulations they were proposing, and the specific things they were putting forward in order to shave away at abortion access, or in but order you, to and you would hear were framed this, as a way to protect women. You would hear the same people like who are working at the the crisis pregnancy centers go, well, maybe it's, you know, maybe that's okay. Maybe, you know, if these, uh, they called them abortionists or mass murderers, you know, maybe they stop them from killing babies today. You, you heard a lot of rationalizations. Um, it's the, you know, would it be tactic. okay to go back in time and kill Hitler? You know, yeah, that kind of you, intellectual argument was tossed around a lot. And you heard it a lot, yeah, even with people that you think of as as the moderates of the anti-abortion movement, if and, those exist. And for um, better or worse, this, this tension of like a multiplicity of different approaches to mm-hmm. ending abortion, rather than just saying, well, we just, we have to figure out how to outlaw it. We have to figure out how to amend the constitution, which, you know, like in the seventies, that was actually one of the things that was initially floated by a lot of early activists, which mm-hmm. was, well, the only real solution is this is to amend the constitution and make it, you know, make it, you know, mm-hmm. unconstitutional to, you know, legalize abortion. Right. But like what actually bore fruit was, Eight million different things all splattered in a bunch of different directions, and but the and the idea of making fundamentally philosophical different arguments in favor of them, not just defend every fetus, but rather, oh, women's health is so critical, we have to regulate this, or oh, parent the relationship between a child and a parent is so important that we have to put in parental notification laws all of these things may have ended up being mutually contradictory by the time you pulled all these different justifications and rationales together. But Mm -hmm. because individually they weren't really the big prize they were working towards. And that, and they seem to have boundless resources and people and energy to do everything. Um, which makes this all feel pretty hopeless right well, now. The, um, the interesting thing for me is that that tension that I mentioned was actually the reason that I ended up sort of hitting the wall and having a lot of very difficult realizations about the movement that I was a part of. Like right. for me in like the timeline here is probably like maybe 94 95 probably um i certainly considered myself against abortion and and stuff but i looked at these you know well if you truly believe this is the holocaust isn't anything justified in order to stop it questions and i thought well yeah that you know you make a strong case for that and that that caused me to start looking at things like okay well 
what are all of the, what are the win-wins? You know, what are places where we could actually find common ground with people who support abortion where, you know, what, what could we do to make life better for, you know, at, in, at the time, the, you know, it was always talked about as for unwed mothers and stuff like that. And with yeah. the idea that, you know, we may not even share some sort of fundamental long-term goal, but if I believe that this is going to reduce some sort of harm, then it's still a valid avenue of pursuit. Um, mm-hmm. And if, you know, if, if it means, hey, you know, everybody can get behind, you know, donating diapers for, you know, mothers who want to have their child but can't afford to, then that's a win-win. And what I increasingly found was two things. That was, was that, the one thing evangelicals didn't want to do. Yeah, it, do it was services. nobody really gave a shit. Yeah. Like there was this there was a broad vague sense that well that's the church's job and somebody can always go to the church and say, "Oh, I'm an unwed mother and I need help and the church will help them." But like that's also not a tactic at scale. Like that that mm. that doesn't. Even if even if you accept someone coming tin cup in hand to a religious institution is a valid approach to a societal problem. Even if you accept that, it, it scales mm-hmm. terribly. And yeah. like me as a young nerd, I was like, well, okay, that, you know, but you got to figure out something else. And every, at every avenue where I was trying to figure out how to, you know, bite off my piece of this, tackle it from every angle thing. Yeah. Yeah. What I discovered was that there wasn't actually much interest in this woman-centric approach to things or in harm to third parties being reduced or whatever. I started having to grapple with just how thin that coat of paint was and in the process of trying to figure out, well, what are real problems that can be solved? I started having to move beyond the sort of very abstract framing of like Francis Mm -hmm. Schaeffer's arguments for the culture of life Mm -hmm. and look at like, okay, well, why do people get abortions? Why do, you know, why does this happen? What leads to this? And there were lots of things that, all I'm now at a point and you know I have now come to the point where I don't think that extraordinary circumstances are necessary to justify someone getting an abortion I don't agree with that but e- even from that framework as I started looking at the circumstances that led people to choose to get an abortion I saw fundamentally insurmountable problems at a personal level that most people just mm-hmm. had no ability to overcome. And in many yeah. cases they, you know, and the people I considered fellow travelers had no interest in resolving those and considered them fundamentally to be excuses. Mm-hmm. They were just an attempt to sort of get away with something, doing something bad. Mm-hmm. And more and more I found myself running up against that and being deeply profoundly disillusioned and frustrated and that led me to like saying well like you know easier access to contraceptives is like literally the single easiest thing that a society could do to like dramatically reduce the number of abortions 
why is that the third rail? If, if, you know, if we're sitting here having <laughs> armchair conversations about whether assassinations are okay, why, you know, w- why not seriously contemplate whether broad public access to contraceptives is, is just as justifiable as like literal targeted assassinations of physicians? Yeah. And it just, there was, it got no traction. What, no interest. What I started having to grapple with was that the movement I was a part of had did have a consistent ethos. It did have a consistent ideology and a philosophy, but that it wasn't the one that was being publicly discussed. It was that, you know, mm-hmm. yes, being somehow party to and being seen as condoning to teenagers having sex outside of marriage is morally worse than killing someone killing a doctor yeah and it was like that's calculus that i like it 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 long term that sent me into years of deeply reassessing my own beliefs and what the basis for my beliefs were and what that had caused me to support. And I'm not saying that like, that's the magic argument that's going to win, but like that, the, the, the steering away from pure ideological arguments in favor of fetal personhood Mm -hmm. towards women centric and conscience laws and stuff like that was a tremendously successful move for the anti-abortion movement. But it also caused some real problems too, because they didn't actually care about a lot of those things that they were making. Right, right, right. You know, I think we both were exposed to this movement at first as very young children. And I think it is very easy before you have learned anything to get when you hear when you're five and you hear well that's a human life well that i mean that makes sense sure i mean you're you're sorting out whether or not pets go to heaven too you know there's a lot of unanswered questions you just kind of have to take the answer you're given uh, until later the, the way that that is is kind of just taken as a as a given and as an absolute and that I mean you're sort of a naturally curious person I don't think that everyone is in that in that movement and that's you know I think there are so many who will never get out but um but I mean you ran into conflict because you you had questions about things that actually might make make turns out asking questions is great as long as you arrive at the right answer Every time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I do think that as, as difficult as those tensions are, the fact that the right never targeted the Supreme court as their way to end abortion, the right never Uh chose a, tactic a single way. to do that and they're not particularly done, after that like you know dark season of the 70s where they basically just kind of flailed against popular culture trying to convince everyone to love fetuses 
Yeah, I think it is important to note that they are not done either, that they, they're they right. going for fetal personhood next. Um, and, and, and they will not rest until there are no abortions performed. It, in, in and the I think States. that that's also the, the flip side of this, like the initial intellectual foundations of why evangelical should have evolved wasn't arguing that abortion was particularly uniquely horrible, but rather that there was this bigger, broader, all-encompassing issue that they had to get behind, of which mm-hmm. abortion was just one facet. Mm-hmm. And that means that they have spent a long time doing that. And yeah. it's also one of the reasons why pointing out simply inconsistencies in like abortion policies or whatever is unlikely to you know, pull yeah. the mask off the Scooby-Doo villain or something like that, because there's a much bigger suite of beliefs and ideologies that compose yeah. that. But I do think it also, yeah. I think it's also ironically one of the causes for encouragement in that there are lots of individual things that can be done by yeah. small organizations and individuals and groups today that don't necessarily have giant federal now X is legal again implications, but are part of the ongoing process of that change like yeah the, pro- the pro-life movement sorry again it's 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 such a force oh, of habit it's 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 like yeah. muscle memory the um the anti-abortion movement didn't their strategy for ending roe wasn't just get new justices on there and they'll end roe it was basically to spend 30 years fire hosing endless court cases at the Supreme Court, as they got more and more control over state and local legislatures and passed more restrictions, and those got challenged, and just keeping the steady stream of court cases going up to the Supreme Court, many of which lost. Many yeah, of will, which lost. It will take firing on all cylinders and fighting this at every level like they've done. And for and it may take 50 years. And every one and every individual doesn't have to be doing every one of those things. Every either. single thing. Right. Like and I think that's that's one of the most difficult things about this moment right now is that there's like a weird tension between we've got to figure out the one trick to flip this back to the way it was and like doomer. Well, there's nothing that we can do except vote. And like, it's none of the individual things is unimportant, but none of the individual things is in and of itself going to shift this and central to it. I think, there will have to be an engagement with the fact that different kinds of different kinds of arguments are going to have to be made in different contexts and different tactics. I mean, yeah, to, to be clear, that is not me advocating like a bizarro universe version of like, you know, clinic violence or, you know, you know, abortion clinic bombings. I'm not saying like we too will have to have our militant wing. I'm not, I, 
what I am saying is that it's, it's, it's dangerous to see things as fruitless simply because they aren't immediately changing the constitution to make abortion legal. I think that I would say that a group like Jane's revenge has some is may, may be doing some cool things. It remains to be seen. Um, I, I don't really want to be investigated by the Fed. <laughs> I think that um, I, you know, I think different degree. I mean, it, I, I think that, that, that um, blockading CPCs, you know, some of the same tactics they've used may be necessary. And, um, and I think that attention to what CPCs are like, if they are going to stand outside abortion clinics and harass people, we should be standing outside of those places and warning people what they're going into. Um, the, def, uh, some kind of aggressive tactics are going to be needed. I think like, like, I, I just can't, I can't accept that, that voting is, is as voting rights are being taken away, that voting is the only yes. thing that can, can be done. Yeah. And, um, and I would also say that tackling societal problems and advocating for things like social safety net measures or, you know, those kinds of things are also an important yeah. and meaningful contribution to that. All of you know, those, a society yes. that a society that recognizes the meaningful challenges that people face living life whether they're having an actual culture of life and taking that phrase back from them well that's 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 a profound irony but like (laughs) i i I would say that like a, a culture that takes the those human challenges seriously yeah is also a culture that is more acutely aware of all of the reasons that someone may choose to have an abortion or mm-hmm. see those as valid reasons. And that's important. I, I also like a majority of Americans yeah. do support legal abortion, Yeah, but the, the anti-abortion less... movement decided to figure out, they decided to build a strategy that did not rely, rely on, on popular support, a po- on mass popular support right. for making abortion illegal. They, they constructed a strategy that whittled away at it from all sides. Mm-hmm. And that required them to, to end what we had of a, of a functioning democracy. Um, yeah, that so, too. So it, it will require some real imagination and po- political imagination and uh, in order to get back um, and, and to, and not just to get back what they've taken, but to, to, make it better than, than, than the status quo. And and to, and I, I think that's important too. Like the idea of having an articulated vision for what is being worked towards beyond simply restoring the status quo as of, you know, mid-June 2022. Yeah, we see how that's working out, right? (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, which is not to say that, well, first step is to get 
every Democrat on the planet to agree on a unified platform. That's definitely not what I mean, but that the goal that is being sought is like reproductive freedom and human autonomy and agency, you know, like if there's, and I mean, one of the reasons that the anti-abortion movement tacked away from fetal life arguments in that era was Mm -hmm. the realization that a majority of the American public said that they believed fetuses were human beings and still supported abortion rights. Yeah. And that was a body blow to the philosophical underpinnings of that movement. They, uh, it was like, well, even, we've convinced everyone of our core premise, and yet they aren't willing to follow it to where we go. That also tells me that we don't need to be afraid of tackling those conversations either, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like the, sure. the Clinton era, early 90s, abortion should be safe, legal, and rare you know, we accept that this is a shameful and terrible thing that, you know, we do as a society, but it's necessary. Like that framing doesn't have to be necessary. It's possible yeah. to engage in like the question of like body and reproductive autonomy as an actual topic for discussion, yeah. Yeah. not just arguing the hard cases. But that doesn't right. mean that arguing the hard cases is also necessary you know, to move other do. cases forward. We have to move beyond rape and incest and life of the mother or we will never get back. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry. I mean, uh, it's, it's very easy for me as like, you know, a, I'm a 40 something white dude in the suburbs of a state that, you know, has, you know, fairly solid protections for abortion right mm-hmm. now. So like, it's very easy for me to opine and you know yeah and and especially as someone who participated materially in the movement that ended abortion rights yeah it's yeah it's 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 hard it's complicated Mm -hmm. i'm very sorry everyone listening (laughs) for what i did and i I know it's it sucks it's i mean for most of it you were a child that's i was also an asshole yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I was an insufferable jerk, even as a 12 year old. So let, let, let you know, I, I think it's important to also get that on the table. But like, <laughs> but it's also very strange to me because at this moment, the the sense of palpable despair and I don't know how we can ever change things yeah. is exactly what I recall from really? my earliest moments in the anti-abortion movement. Oh, that's interesting. The sense of hopeless, like when Clinton was elected in particular. Like, yeah, that, you know, if, if you want a real picture, I was like, I think mm-hmm. 12 or 13 or, oh God, no, wait, I was older than that. Anyways, it, but like, you know, Clinton was elected and I was sitting there in the local Republican campaign headquarters as everyone was watching the results come in on television and we'd all, you know, been hoping and there was just this sense of doom and someone talked about all these babies that are gonna die and just you we were... all shook our heads and walked out and we didn't know wow. didn't know when rush was on tv talking about how this is the last election america will ever have you know and because the clinton regime has started and 
I was so excited when the Clinton <laughs> won. That was the first, uh, my parents were Democrats. That was the first. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that would have been a much better way to spend that, that evening. I, got involved with. I, I wasn't even really involved. They went to some rallies and I went along and got very interested in it. Um, but I did know those people who, who felt that way about it. So. But like I it, it is a strange moment. And ironically, what I keep returning to is, okay, they did what they've, you know, what we can now look at and see what that movement has done. Mm -hmm. They did that coming out of that profound despair and sense of hopelessness. Yeah, that's right. They're they're not the only ones that can do that. I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying we should go and assassinate anybody, but I, yeah. I, do, I do think some, like, there are people, there need to get creative about what can be done and and recognize that it's not all going to be legal now. Um, it's, it's not all going to be legal. Some of it is going to be violating laws in order to keep a flood of cases going to the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, and and I have to say, what the way that some of some national organizations like Planned Parenthood have gone above and beyond to show that they're complying with state laws is really disheartening. I think that that in, they, in part if, because if they, consistently group, challenging those laws and having a case for why those laws were being broken, uh-huh. and using those as a constant stream of cases where you know like. Put those yeah. hard cases in front of the Supreme Court over if and over they and over. Can't, if they can't do that with all the money and resources that they have, I'm uh, yeah, it, it's going to, people are going to have to do things that are illegal and they're going to have to make them enforce these laws. And, uh, and that's how laws get challenged. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and, and I guess that's what I also mean about, like, the idea of, like, a multiplicity of tactics that yeah. it's not simply, oh, okay, well, you know, reproductive reproductive freedom gets put on pause for however many years it takes the Democrats to get a sufficient enough majority and enough Supreme Court justices to turn over. Like, that's not, mm-hmm. you know, things have yeah. to proceed on lots of different fronts. And yeah. abortion is one of the most obvious and talked about issues right now but as we've discussed lots of times on the show there are lots of interrelated issues as well from you know from you know establishment clause issues that you know are are now being discussed as you know up for debate what if you know (laughs) there's yeah, it, it, on all of these different fronts, viewing yeah. them as part of a, we're in a situation where mutually, you know, mutual independent efforts to accomplish small incremental goals are yeah. not a waste of time, especially when there is a larger thing towards which they are all contributing. The, yeah. the multiplicative like snowball effect of those efforts does add up. That is not 
a justification of shrugging off on the big picture stuff and saying, oh, well, what can Democrats do? They can't vote on anything until they've got the votes. But like lots of things can and should happen simultaneously. Yeah. 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 Anyways. And and we, the way that the, the, the anti-abortion movement captured the Republican Party, there has to be some kind of reckoning with the Democratic Party to make them to, to make them take these concerns seriously. Um, the, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take because we have we have this gerontocracy that that does not seem to care. I mean, the, um, the conservative like conservative anti-abortion movement members voted in droves for GOP candidates, but they did not support pro-choice GOP candidates for the most part. They primaried the hell out of them. They supported their opponents. They occasionally supported third-party candidates if they felt... And we have a Nancy Pelosi endorsing anti-abortion Democrat. I mean, this is this this cannot continue the way that the, the Democrats are unafraid of their base this way. This 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 has to end. Um, and they have to be captured by by people who who have who actually care about these issues. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think it, it's and a lot of my views on that are shaped by you know having seen how the anti-abortion movement accomplished what it did. Yeah, you know, it didn't simply get in lockstep and just start fire hosing votes no. at the GOP. No, yeah. Okay, <laughs> well. That, that, that got a little more, I mean, it's ironic to say that that was more political than our episodes usually are <laughs> because, yeah. but like, it does feel a little more in the moment political. Yeah. It, I guess so. Yeah. It's a, it's a very difficult time. And I guess for everybody listening, who's despairing or scared, mm-hmm. I yeah, it, it it sucks. Yeah, there's. I mean, yeah. So, but change is possible, even if there isn't a giant, big figurehead voting block to make it right now. There's not a totalizing theory of how to do it. There are yeah. only, yeah, revolutionary Lo- fissures in in different places in our society where, where change might might erupt if we if we keep fighting i think that's uh i think that that's that's a good general principle i think yeah. <laughs> thanks it's from adorno and horkheimer's dialectic of enlightenment that is way more of a deep cut than i was expecting i took my cap um, <laughs> um yeah, and I think. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll uncharacteristically uh, shut up and stop, stop ranting about stuff. Well, um, we have a, <laughs> we've still got a Substack. We're we're still chugging along, and uh, hopefully, um, hopefully, we'll find less doomy ways of uh, <laughs> continuing in the coming days and weeks. Um, but, uh, and we are we are on Twitter. Um, Jeff is at Eaton, and I am at 
Kristen Rawls. It's Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-R-A-W-L-S. There you can also find my personal newsletter and subscribe if you'd like. Um, and I don't know, what else do we need to say? Give to abortion funds and to local abortion funds. Um, look at groups in the South that have been doing this work for a long time, like Sister Song in Georgia. Because a lot of them have experience already dealing with the highly restrictive. All right. Thank you so much. Have a, have as good an evening as possible. All right.